0: Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. I am hard at work putting together two episodes that are becoming somewhat of a tradition on this show. The first is our 2016 Goals episode, which will be released right before the new year. And I need your help on this episode. We're going to be featuring the Meister fans. We want to hear what your goals are. I'll be sharing mine. We'll get some Mountain Meisters on the episode too. It's going to be a great time. Please submit your goals to me. Go to our website, mtnmeister.com. The link is right there. I walk you through how to record on your iPhone or whatever smartphone you have. It's so easy. It'll take two minutes, and you'll hear your voice on Mountain Meister, which is pretty cool. Uh, Also, the second thing that I'm working on is our outdoor retailer episode, which happens twice a year, one for the winter, one for the summer. Uh, We give away thousands of dollars of free gear to the Meister fans on this show. Basically, we feature a company and they pledge to give gear. This year, each company is giving over $200 worth of gear. Last time, we had 19 companies on the show, so you do the math. Uh, Basically, how this works is the first person to request the gear on the show wins it. You can only win one thing, but the first person who requests it gets it. The key piece of information that you need is when will this episode be released so you can be the first one to listen to it. Now, I need to make some money doing this because I don't get paid, so in order for you to get this valuable piece of information, we have options that you can buy on the website. One of them is just the date of the episode being released. That's only three bucks. Or you can splurge a little bit more and get the $5 package, which includes the date and a three-hour time window. Or you can open up your wallet and spend $10 on this piece of information. You'll get the exact time of the episode release. Now, I'm not one to make guarantees, but if you spend $10 for the exact time, it is highly likely that you will win a piece of gear on this episode, or multiple pieces of gear. Some companies offer entire packages. Last year, the average prize was $100. This year, I expect it'll be more than that. Pretty good investment, if you ask me. mtnmeister.com slash show to buy one of these packages. Since I'm hard at work on these episodes, we're throwing it back this week to Roman Dial, legendary Alaskan adventurer, although he won't tell you that. Um, we talked to Roman about some really cool topics, including hedonic adaptation, how negative and positive events may not impact us the way that we think that they do, and we may often return to our previous level of happiness. Here's episode 136 with Roman Dial. That's quite a name. Do you know how you got your name, Roman?
1: Yep, I was named after my great-uncle, um... Uncle Roman Klapsa, although he went by Ron, <clears throat> and uh, Roman Klapsa was a uh, the uncle of my father, and he was born to an immigrant mother up in uh, Enumclaw, Washington, and he had another brother, Joseph, and that's my middle name, so I'm Roman Joseph. It's kind of common Polish combo to have Roman and Joseph. I, I know another friend of mine; his name is Joseph Roman. <laughs>
0: I think uh, just really quickly I think I might be named after my great uncle. I don't what is a great uncle exactly because I'm named after my mother's uncle, I believe. That's it. That's
1: a great That's uncle. That's a
0: great uncle. Wow, we have so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> what we don't have in common though is that you have traversed uh the entire Brooks Range in Alaska through skiing, packrafting and kayaking. Uh you also did it on a bike and many 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 other things I was thinking when I was writing this that you should just have your own podcast about your life Roman
1: I I would but I'd rather do stuff than talk (laughs) about
0: it that might be the the difference between us we had a a guy named Casey Green on the show uh, who has followed your travels and this is what Casey had to say he said that guy is a legendary legendary Alaskan adventurer and just just, like, a really humble guy, um, and he's been doing stuff
1: for over, God, since, like, the early 80s, and he's pretty he pretty much about, like, pack rafting to people, although he won't say that, and, you know, oh, wow. he's uh, so much stuff. I mean, he, he learned his glacier travel from, like, Yvonne Chouinard and just doing all these crazy, he's the one, actually, I got the inspiration for pack biking from, because he did this traverse and 96 of the Alaskan range. And they did it by bikes and pack rafts ah. he was featured in the May 97 issue of National Geographic. I mean, this guy is just like crazy visionary and he pretty much like, I mean, he's been pushing the sport of pack rafting and, and just wilderness travel and all that kind of stuff. Um,
0: so Roman, some nice words from Casey there. Is he right? Did you invent pack rafting?
1: <laughs> no, I did <laughs> I didn't invent pack rafting, and I have to say I, I really admire Casey because he's, you know, he's doing really cool bike trips and he makes beautiful maps about them. And, and as an older guy, because I am, I am in my mid fifties, and in fact, the guy who showed me pack rafting, he was in his mid fifties when he showed it to me, and I was in my early twenties. Mm. So just passing our kind of um, visions and our experiences from generation to generation is one of the really satisfying things to me, about adventuring. Hmm.
0: I guess we didn't actually say what packrafting was, and I definitely didn't know at one point in time. Roman, you wrote a book on it, didn't you?
1: Yep. Well, um, some of your listeners might enjoy it. It, It's divided into two two pieces. The first piece is how-to for beginners, and then the second piece is a collection of various stories using packrafts in various ways, like using them with mountain bikes or... Using them with backpacks, uh, going hunting, going traveling overseas, things like that, and um, and I I think it's the only pack rafting book out there. And it the gear, of course, is outdated because Alpaca keeps coming up with new boats every year. But but the basics are still are still applicable. And I I'd, I'd like it if you plug my book on this.
0: We will absolutely plug your book. Right, We'll plug it right into the Meister profile page. For the listeners, go check it out, mtnmeister.com. We'll have a link to Roman's book if you're interested in learning more about packrafting. You've been called a legendary Alaskan adventurer. I assume you don't refer to yourself that way.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't. I've never said I was a, a legendary anything, but I, I don't think I've really ever called myself an adventurer either. I mean. Oh, no. Um, I mean, I am one, but I wouldn't, I've usually been sort of in the different niches within the, uh, adventurer category, I guess. So, but yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever said I'm an Alaskan adventurer, although I don't, I wouldn't refute the claim, you know, <laughs> that's uh,
0: <laughs> So I was surprised to read that you grew up in the suburbs of DC. Tell us a little, a little about your childhood.
1: Sure. Well, I was, I was born in Seattle and, um, I moved to the East Coast with my dad and mom as a kid. And I went to high school in Falls Church inside of the Beltway near D.C. But I had a strong draw to the West, having been from the West. And when I was nine years old, I spent a summer in Alaska, in the interior of Alaska, at the end of a of a gravel road. And this was before there was a road from Fairbanks to Anchorage across the state. And I spent a summer in the mountains with my uncles, and I had like um, a little motorcycle I could run around with. I had a twenty-two. I had a I had a uh, correspondence course in taxidermy, and I had a wolf dog, and I could pretty much do whatever I wanted for this whole summer. I took care of myself. You know, I cooked my own meals. I entertained myself. At nine years old. Yep, at nine, and I think that really kind of colored my whole view of life in fact to be honest with you ben i can't believe i can't remember anything before i was nine you know like before that trip to alaska i don't remember any of my childhood really but after that trip the only place i wanted to be was alaska and so when i graduated from high school i graduated early and i moved to alaska when i was 16 to go to college at the university of alaska in fairbanks
0: 16 (laughs) what what did you study in college
1: well, I came to Alaska, and I, wanted, I thought I wanted to study wildlife biology, but I took some advice from my father, and he said, take a math class you know, every semester while you're in school, and I kind of realized right away that I couldn't take a math class every semester if I was a wildlife student, so I switched to biology, and I studied biology and math, and I graduated with a degree in each.
0: So I've heard a lot of mathematicians say math is everywhere, and I kind of agree with like a li- very limited backgr- math background. Do you see math in kind of everywhere you go?
1: Well, you know, um, yes, I do, I guess. I see sort of the, you know, I'm not exactly sure what we would mean if we see math everywhere we go, but I see sort of the, the power of symbolic logic everywhere I go. And, um, you know, maybe it even spills into my adventuring life. For example, in the early 80s, I got into wilderness racing is what we called it up here. And it would later on be called adventure racing. Um, But we kind of invented that. I didn't really invent pack rafting, but I I might, I I would want to claim, but I I can't, that I I was one of the founders of adventure racing. And, um, And so early on, I realized that weight kills speed in adventure racing or wilderness racing. And at some point during my math degree, I, I kind of wanted to figure out, well, how far could a person go? Because in Alaska's adventure racing, we have slightly different rules. You know what adventure racing yeah. is, right? Yes, so. Yeah, so in Alaska, our rules were slightly different. And in Alaska, you'd start in one place and go to another place that was 150 to 250 miles away And you had to carry everything with you, all your gear, all your food that you would need for that whole trip. And you couldn't use any roads. You couldn't use any motorized vehicles. You couldn't get any help from anybody who wasn't in the race, other racers meaning. And you couldn't um, use pack animals. So basically, um, in adventure racing, they have legs where you go from one transition area to another and you have to carry all your own stuff. But this is like a gigantic one. You know what I mean? Like 150 miles. And so – Doing those races in my early 20s, I thought, well, how far could a person go if they carried all their own food and gear? You know, like like if you carry too much stuff, you can't move. But if you carry too little, you'll starve. So I wanted to figure out what that optimum was. And I thought about that in my early 20s or middle 20s. And it wasn't until my middle 40s that I actually solved that problem. And I solved the problem in my 20s mathematically, but I, I, I found out in physical terms, I with my own body what I could do in my mid forties.
0: Huh? So, and then also I, I read that you were at one point a mountaineer, an Alpine mountaineer, uh, but you stopped, you quit mountaineering. Uh, is that true?
1: I did. Yeah. I mean, I still go up in the mountains and, um, but I don't do the kind of, the kind of climbing that's real climbing in my, in my book, you know, in my, from my point of view, the real climbing is what people do in mountains when they climb big faces that have rock and ice and snow. Mm-hmm. That That's real climbing. I don't do that anymore. No, I quit that. I'll, yeah, like in my mid twenties. So
0: the reason I asked that is because we've had a lot of mountaineers on this show and we've heard how it can be addicting. And there are times when, you know, you say you're going to stop and then you find yourself back there. What made you stop? Like, was there was it a powerful experience? What made you quit?
1: Well, I, I like your, uh, your other um, guests, absolutely. I, I quit multiple times and then would go back because it's sort of like being an alcoholic probably or, or drinking too much. You drink and you have this horrible hangover and you tell yourself, I'm never going to do that again. And then the next weekend, you, you do it anyway. And, um, and so for me, uh, I was in the Alaska Range doing a first descent. And we were descending. This guy Chuck Comstock and I were descending this ridge that had only been climbed once and never descended. It was a double cornice ridge. And Chuck had this real fiery personality, and we kind of got in a little argument about route choice and and decisions. It was getting late. It was going to probably get to be you know twenty or twenty five below zero that night when we had to bivouac and. And so I kind of chewed him out, and he he responded. We were standing on this ridge, and he responded with, you know, Roman? He goes. He had this sort of funny southern draw. He goes, well, you know, Roman, you've got a shovel and a cook pot. I've got a shovel and a cook pot. You've got a stove, and I've got a stove. Here, take your rope. And we had two ropes, you know, double twin ropes tied. He untied my rope. He says, here, take your rope and give me mine, and we'll go our separate ways. (laughs) And this was like, you know, on this super narrow ridge. It was – couple thousand feet down one way and a couple thousand feet down the other. And it was getting late. The sun was low. And I was like, Chuck, you know, I am really sorry. I, You know, I, it's my fault we didn't stop back there. You know, we, we should have stopped. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Why don't you please tie back into the rope? And so he tied into the rope, and I fed the rope out as he walked out on this ridge. And he got to the other side of this sort of low call, and he was probing with his ice axe, and I was standing on the ridge and I saw him drop and there was a bunch of rope at my feet and I knew immediately he'd, he'd broken this cornice and he was falling down the mountain and I, the rope was just peeling out and I had no choice but to jump off the other side because there was no way I could have held his fall. So I jumped off one side of the ridge as he fell down the other side of the ridge.
0: The rest of that story coming up in a bit. First, don't forget that we're doing our 2016 Goals episode and I need your help. If you're busy right now, and maybe you're driving or you're running, use Siri to remind you. Hey, Siri. Siri here. How may I help you? Remind me to send Ben my 2016 goals in one hour. Okay, I'll remind you. Hey, Siri. Hello there, Ben. Can you give me $5,000 a month to help fund my podcast? that may be beyond my abilities at the moment. Ah, worth a shot. MTNMeister.com. Search 2016 goals to submit yours. So were you suspended on the other side?
1: Well, I was tumbling through space, you know, hoping that I wasn't going to break any bones. I was praying to God, dear God, don't let me break any bones. I don't care if I die, just don't break any bones. Because if I was to break any bones and be suspended, as you say on one side of this ridge with chuck suspended on the other it would be difficult for us to to do anything because this ridge I was tumbling once I fell off the ridge the ridge was doubly corniced meaning it had like a frozen wave on one side where chuck had fallen and on the other side it was a a big bulge of rime ice like what used to build up in old refrigerator freezers you know this hard ice that moist air builds up on and it was a big, huge bulge. And so as I tumbled down, you know, I fell straight down. I was below this overhanging bulge of ice. And then Chuck was on the other side or underneath this overhang of snow. So I don't know if I was busted up, it would have been really difficult to get up, you know? Mm. So I came to, I I finally, you know, I tumbled a long ways and stopped and hanging from the rope and wondered, you know, how Chuck was on the other side. But I was okay i didn't I didn't break anything. The only thing I lost you know I had a camera around my neck. I had two ice climbing tools. I had ice screws, I had crampons on, and uh, miraculously, I was completely unhurt. The only thing that and I had a backpack on too because we were this was like a five day climb and um, the only thing I lost was my helmet, and it just I looked down I could see my helmet like you know bouncing on the slope a thousand two thousand feet below. So then I had to Jumar up to the ridge, and I was really worried about Chuck because I didn't know, you know, what had happened to him. I was worried that he might he might, he might, might be dead, you know. And I got up to the top, and this big section of ridge just collapsed, and he'd fallen down. And I could see him trying to climb up. And he, I'd fallen on this sunny side that was kind of soft and white snow and, you know, in the sunshine. And he'd fallen down onto the shadowed side into this deep rocky couloir that was mostly like black ice and these granite boulders sticking out of the ice and he had spindrift was going down because it was sort of windy and he was trying to climb up and he had this big mess of rope and his hand was hurt and I just said hey hold on Chuck you know stay there and I rappelled down to him and he'd broken his hand and he said that when he'd fallen he felt as if all this weight, he just felt like it felt like a train that all of the weight of this snow and ice from the cornice that it had broken was so, so powerful. He felt like it was just going to break the rope, you know, just pull him off, break the rope, but it didn't. And, uh, we rappelled down, I don't know, you know, 10 rappels and made a bivouac and then made some more rappels the next day. And, and that's when I decided, you know, I've really, I've had enough. It doesn't matter how good you are in the mountains. like, you, the mountains don't care how good you are, and um, and it's just a matter of luck. It's not really a matter of, I mean, skills. You need to have good skill, but all the skill does is get you, you know, keep you alive till you get into more riskier and riskier situations.
0: Right. Do you feel the same way, of, I, I guess you don't feel the same way about, you know, this other kind of expedition that you do, not not necessarily alpine mountaineering, but there's definitely risk in in those too right
1: yeah there's risk in everything for sure i mean
0: um but but has anything traumatic enough happened to make you stop doing that or is it just specific to mountaineering
1: well i i think you know that happened when i was quite young i think i was about 25 and and then since then i've maybe i can tell with something is getting to the point that I don't really want to to get it, to, for it to get any more hazardous, you know, like, um, you know, the sport I'm particularly interested in now is I like whitewater, steep creek pack rafting, you know, I really do like that. And, um, and I think there are some situations, you know, that I just don't feel I mean, I'm an old man. So I, I'm, I'm all dried up, my my testosterone's all dried up so I'm not really gonna push myself as far as I (laughs) might have when I was in my mid-20s but I mean as far as pack grafting goes I I feel like I'm not really doing anything like I don't run class five Mm -hmm. I stop kind of at class four class four plus and I don't I try not to take risks that I you know I look at I mean it's possible to drown for sure you know I mean it's possible to drown for sure, but I, I try not to do those sorts of things where it would be as risky as having to jump. Like climbing cornice ridges is something that technology hasn't solved yet. You know, like right. climbing um, ice and rock, you know, there's, the, the technology has improved vastly in the last 30 years. But climbing cornice ridges, they're just as hard now as they've ever been. And so um, with pack rafting, the technology has gotten has improved almost each year. It gets better, and you're kind of able to run steeper and steeper creeks and and things like that. But I think you know I'm, you know I I feel like I I know what my limit is. I don't need to push it beyond a certain point.
0: Mm-hmm. So here's something that I've been thinking about lately. I, I, we hear uh, this, and you're a good person to ask. Actually, we hear people saying things like you know when I was young, I felt like I had nothing to lose. Or now that I'm older, I have more to lose. We hear people say those sorts of things. Whereas my feeling is almost like, you know, I'm young. I have so many good years ahead of me, which means I almost have more to lose by taking risks because of what can happen. Is that a logical thought process or no?
1: Well, I don't know if it's logical. but (laughs) um, yeah. Well, here's the thing is that when we're young, there's other things that are... That are at play there probably aren't really logical in some sense, but um, when we are young, you know, our biology kind of gets in the way mm-hmm. of any logic, and and a lot of times our biology is is running the show. And so I feel that when you're young, um, a lot of what we're doing, and this is sort of a cartoon caricature, but when we're young, a lot of what we're doing is based on our own our own sort of hormones sort of feeding back on what we do. Mm-hmm. And so when you're young, you're kind of mostly in the mode of finding a mate, for example, and establishing your status. And and I don't mean these things like in a very literal sense, like you're not thinking, wow, you know, I'm going to go risk my life climbing a mountain because I know it's going to get me a, you know, a hot chick, right. you know, or I'm going to be, and some people do think that for sure, but they, we laugh at them when they say that, <laughs> or or that it's going to make me like, you know, the most famous person in the world, I'm going to get all kinds of sponsorship, and the people do think about that for sure, but there's other things at play that we just can't, there's just the biology is that when we do certain things, um, like risk our lives, we get a really, we get a really big jolt of um juice when we survive okay so let me just sort of back up so when you're young your body and your mind work way better than when you're older and so it's sort of like the perfect time to take a risk because just like if you're an investment banker you take a risk you can get a huge reward you can lose everything but you can also get a huge reward and the best time to really take that kind of a risk financially is when you have the most money that you can do it with you know Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you have very little money, but you can risk it all, and maybe you win big. But in some sense, the same thing's happening with our lives. We can take these big risks when we're young, because we it can give us big rewards. Mm, right. So, um, I guess, as far as, I, what I, I was trying to say is that I don't, I, we can't help, we can't help ourselves. Our biology is going to drive us to do things when our, to do risky things when we're young, whether we want to or not, and it's going to It's going to resist, we're going to, our bodies are going to resist us doing crazy, what we call crazy or risky things when we're old, whether we want to or not. There's outliers, of course, but um, it's it's pretty much the way our bodies are put together is how I feel about it.
0: I I really like what you just said there. Yeah, I, I like talking about things that are beyond our control. Um, one of which is this topic, and let me just preface this by saying a lot of the inspiration and content behind this show is based on what book I'm currently reading while we, we talk. So uh, the book I'm reading right now is called The Upside of Irrationality. Um, so I want to talk about this concept that the author Dan Ariely just talked about, and it's called hedonic adaptation, which basically means that our bodies have this ability to really adapt, uh, both biologically as we're kind of getting to, you know, if we leave a dark room and go to a light area, our eyes adapt to that lighter environment. Um, Another example I had written down was training for a marathon. It's really difficult to envision running a marathon when you've never run before, but, you know, eventually your body adapts. Now, the other side of this hedonic adaptation is how our level of happiness or our level of depression can adapt. Uh, so he talked about this really interesting experiment where uh, they looked at lottery ticket winners and paraplegics. and after about a year after the event happened, so winning the lottery ticket or uh, becoming a paraplegic, they basically returned to their previous level of happiness in both scenarios huh. isn't that interesting
1: yeah it's sort of like it's fixed based on other things than sort of our immediate environment
0: yeah and it, uh, I think another point that he makes is like we the things that change our mood are is change the things that change our mood is change so you know when you first win the lottery ticket you're really really happy but eventually you adapt to that new environment whereas you would almost be happier if you could split up those lottery ticket winnings and win a little bit each day each day each day and you would get a little bit happier a little bit happier a little bit happier because you keep winning
1: right well it's it's sort of the same same thing with adventuring you always feel like oh if i just do one more big trip you know or i'll just do this one big trip and i'll be satisfied but it's never that way you know the, the one big trip you finish that one and and all it really gets you i mean you feel good for a while and it's very satisfying but then you know it wears off and it's time to think about the other one the next one and there there really isn't any one big final trip unless you lose interest in the lose interest in the discipline or something else happens and causes you to to not be able to participate anymore. And so that makes, that's, that is, I, I believe that. That's interesting.
0: I'm so glad you just brought that up. That's that's so interesting. So I guess w- with your adventuring, eventually it could come become dangerous. How do you define the limit? Because, you know, your human nature wants more and more and more. Where do you stop?
1: Well, it's really, I, I've, I find it's valuable to have other people in your life and to think about them, you know? Um, so, like, when when something happens to us, it's not just us that's affected, and um, I mean, I, I mean, I did some horrible things to my parents when I was young. I didn't contact them for months at a time, you know, and I took off. They had no idea where I was. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was hitchhiking across the country, and Writing freight trains and and then soloing in my early twenties, I was soloing big waterfalls and rock faces and things like that. And I um, my parents didn't really know, and I didn't really even think about well, what would happen? How would people feel? I never ever. I don't think I ever thought about how would people feel if something happened to me? Because if we die, when we die, I mean, I don't know. I, I, there maybe there's an afterlife, but but as far as I can tell, the people who are living the afterlife, they don't communicate with me, and maybe they communicate with you, but I have this sensation that people, if there is an afterlife, let's just assume there is. If there is one, it's totally disconnected from this world. So anybody who who dies, we, we lose them. They're not in our world anymore. And so when you die, you know, you're dead. I don't think you can really... I don't think you're really suffering anymore. I don't think you miss anything anymore. I don't think you feel anything because you're dead. You don't feel. But the people you leave behind, they're the ones who are really hurt. And um, and to have a loved one gone is extremely painful. And I feel as if it's pretty irresponsible and selfish to only think about like how jacked up you are uh, tickling the lizard brain by surviving another death-defying stunt, you know, and and if you do die, you may have been feeling really good right up to the moment that you died. But after you're dead, the people you leave behind are really going to miss you. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess that for me now, or as I've gotten older, because I've I've been in a relationship with Peggy Dial, my wife, f- for you know 35 years, maybe. That's a long time. And I have, have, when I was younger, I'll be the first to admit, I didn't think, wow, she's going to be really upset if I, if I die. But the older I've gotten, especially after I've had kids, I realize that there's other people who depend on me. They would be really hurt if I were gone. And so I, that plays into this risk and reward equation a lot more than it did when I was a 20-something.
0: And it's something that – the it's the conversation that's being had right now. Um, your episode's going to be released a few weeks after we have this conversation. But the conversation that people are having around with Dean Potter, uh, you know, with the events in Yosemite. But the other side is you have to pursue what you love and you have to live your life. And if it's something that you need to do. Then where do you draw the line? I mean, there's there's no – potentially no – Right and wrong answer there are probably many different shades of gray well let, let
1: me just cut in there right mm-hmm. and mention that what if I said well you know I really like doing drugs they make me feel good and I'm happiest when I'm you know tripping on mushrooms or mm-hmm. snorting cocaine or whatever smoking meth whatever it happens to be thehap that's the drug right now and that's living my life and I really like doing that now. What's the difference between saying that and saying, you know, I really like base jumping and proximity flying and hucking waterfalls, class six waterfalls in my kayak and and flying down mountains on my full suspension mountain bike? Because I just feel I feel really good about that. And, and those things will bust us up. I mean, I've got all these I've got bones that I've broken in my youth. You know, i abuse my body. I sometimes wish that I hadn't. And I did it all because, you know, I got a really good feeling doing it, but I, I could have got a really good feeling doing drugs. So I, I guess that in some ways, you know, we have as a culture, you know, we said drugs are bad, but all these emotions that we generate from hormones that it's kind of like doing drugs, dopamine or adrenaline. It's kind of like a drug. It's just that we're creating it by putting ourselves in a certain situation, um, what about that? How is that, you know, what we, we should really think closely about how is that different from drug abuse? And then, and then even within that area of, oh, I like to scare myself, you know, which is kind of what it comes down to. I like to scare myself and survive. There are certain scaring ourselves and surviving situations that we as a culture think are, you know, ridiculous. So let me give you one example. Timothy Treadwell. Do you know who he is? No. He was this guy who was, I guess he was a drug addict for a time and a surfer in Southern California. And somehow he ended up coming to Alaska. And I don't remember how. And he came up to Alaska and he fell in love with brown bears. And for like 10 or 13 years, he would go and hang out with brown bears on the Alaska Peninsula near Katmai by himself and he got really close to these bears and he started filming it. And, and he actually ended up dying because he was killed and eaten by a bear. And, boy, is he vilified in the state of Alaska as a crazy man. But Dean Potter is not being vilified and he you know, he died, I think he died, hitting a rock wall. And, um, and I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is that Dean Potter was considered a hero and this uh, Timothy Treadwell was was not. You know, Timothy Treadwell is this guy that people thought was a complete fool, but really he was getting a big jolt of, advent, of adventuring adrenaline by touching, you know, wild brown bears on the nose and by getting really close to the brown bears, just like these wingsuit fires like to get really close to the cliffs. And yet, because he was like the only guy out there touching bears, he was crazy. But all these other... Um, wingsuit flyers that we watch on YouTube and I watch them. I'd love to do it. I think it looks awesome. I mean, I just thought the idea of being able to fly like that and close to the mountains. I mean, that just looks like really, really cool. I would love to do it. I would like to touch a bear's nose, you know, but I think if I got into wingsuiting, people would think I was really cool. But if I got into touching bear's noses, they'd think I was crazy, even though I would get a thrill. I would get a thrill kind of like. Uh, And by a thrill, I mean a a dose of a drug Mm -hmm. that I have induced not by taking a drug but by putting my body into an environmental situation that my my body produces its own drug.
0: I think it's a fantastic point. I do – I want to encourage some discussion on the listener's behalf. We're going to have a discussion forum on your page, Roman. And we'll see if we can get some listeners to give their two cents about this because, oh, oh, man, this is really interesting. Good point. Um, something which I find less interesting but still necessary is your gear recommendation. uh We like to get one from everybody that comes on the show, so anything that you would recommend to our listeners um, maybe a technical piece, maybe something that uh nobody has but everybody should have
1: um i'm I cannot believe where alpaca rafts have gone with their pack rafts, and I've been pack rafting since another fifty-five-year-old guy showed me pack rafting when I was twenty-one. So we're talking over thirty years, and pack rafts were pretty crude, and I did, you know, they were so crude, but they gave me such freedom. I stuck with them, and and I feel really blessed that that now I can enjoy these fantastic. And by the way, Alpaca doesn't give me any deals; they don't. Sponsor me in any way. In fact, sometimes we kind of butt heads over things. (laughs) But the alpaca rafts are like, especially the ones with the whitewater spray decks and the zippers on the back, they are simply amazing boats and super fun. It's like riding a mountain bike on the water. So that's number one. And they just keep getting better each year. I mean, I remember like about five years ago, I thought, how could they get any better? And each year they've gotten better and better. We went down the Grand Canyon. In January, um, five of us, and we basically did a self-supported pack rafting trip. And it was a 220-mile trip, and we carried everything with us, including our poop cans that we stored inside the tubes of the boat. Like they have a zipper where that opens up the tube. So where the air is, you, you can store things. And we had our poop cans in there. We had a fire pan. And one of the guys was able to Eskimo roll his pack raft in the biggest rapids, And so this is really remarkable. And then the second piece of gear, I think that goes along with a pack raft, I think it's called Hyperlite Mountain Gear, something like HMG. And they make these really good packs out of Cuban fiber. And um, they have a roll top closure and they're really light and they're durable and um, and they're super functional. and, And those are the, I think, you know, I've had a lot of different backpacks over the years and that's my go-to pack. They make a couple of different models. I have a little one for overnight trips and I have a big one for pack rafting and three-day trips. And then the third piece of gear that I think is really good that I, I like a lot right now are those Solomon. Um, they have this, I just forgot the name of them, but the traction is really good. Yes. Speed cross. That's what they're called. Cross. Okay. Yeah. That's an awesome shoe. And you know, it, it's 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 not for everybody because I I recommended it to some other people and the shoe will wear out. You have to be one of those people who's kind of easy on their gear and you got to watch where you put your feet because they're so light you can wear them out really quickly. So you could put shoe goo all over them if you wanted to. But those are the three favorite pieces of gear
0: right now. So good the alpaca HMG and Solomon shoes on Roman's Meister profile page on our website MTN com. The final question for you, Roman, and it's how we got you on the show. And that is, who do you want to hear as the next Mountain Meister?
1: You know, there's a couple of people I would I would say. I'd like to hear what Luke Mel has to say. He is um, the, the current, you know, Alaskan adventurer that I most admire. Um, he does the kinds of trips that I would like to do. I mean, there's a lot of neat adventurers in Alaska for sure. You know, there's Hig and Aaron. I think they would be an interesting couple to talk to but they get a lot of coverage and they talk a lot about themselves already so you probably don't need to talk to them but i think that they would be hig would be especially interesting to talk to and luke and then another guy that i think would be really interested is this fella doomed fast binder who works for alpaca he was a, a mountain bike racer he was like a single speed um 29 inch mountain bike racer in the west for a long time and then another guy named um Mike Kuryak, who also was a big uh, mountain bike racer and fat bike racer. He kind of he kind of got the whole fat bike thing up on center stage, and he's switched to pack rafting now also, but he's still a great bike rider. And all those people, I think, are really articulate, articulate and creative people in the adventure and outdoor world, and I would love to hear them on this on this
0: podcast. podcast.
1: podcast. <laughs> Thank <for>, you. <yeah.
0: laughs> For the listeners, keep an ear out for those guys on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Roman, thanks so much for spending the time today. It was a great conversation.
1: Well, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. So um, thanks for thinking of me.
0: Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that throwback episode with Roman Dial. We originally released that in June of 20. You can find it on our website. Just search Roman or Dial or Packrafting. It's a pretty intelligent search. Don't forget that you can help us out in a few different ways right now, one of which is to submit your 2016 goals. We want to hear them. Think about how much you want to hear everybody else's goals. Well, that's how much they want to hear yours. Make a recording. Send it to me, ben at mtnmeister.com. Also, if you'd like to get some extra information about our outdoor retailer gear giveaway, go to mtnmeister.com slash show, and you can buy the date, a time range, or the exact time there. As always, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You've been listening to Mountain Meister.